I guess I would say it's a regret that none of us, I don't think, I I never had that conversation with my mother. You know, I, I never said to her, so you've lost your faith. How are you? You know, so where is God in this? So you're dying. How are we? You know, we never had that talk, I think, because for me, it just, I just didn't have the vocabulary for it. I didn't know how to have that kind of an open conversation because my whole life had been about not talking about those things because I didn't want to make them more real. And here it was this ultimate reality, like looking me in the face, and I didn't know how to talk about it. Welcome to Seeking the Self podcast. Where we explore how we find and lose ourselves in the modern world. It was like a baptism by fire. It's simple. I try to make sure when I go to bed at night, I lie my head on the pillow and I think today's been a good day. Because if it was an easy journey, what are we learning? I'm Dr. Aaron Bailick. And I'm Natalie Nahai. And this is Seeking the Self. more and more in this distracted world that we live in, this extroverted world that we live in with all of the social media and everything that's happening, it feels so much more important that that kind of discourse that goes on in the consultation room happens outside the consultation room and that we can actually talk about and almost kind of educate in a way about how regular life experiences everyday life experiences as well as extreme experiences can enable people to find an aspect of themselves that they were previously unaware of. I think also oftentimes we find ourselves in relationship to another or to a subject or to an experience and so stories that we might come across that may seem extreme or may seem like they don't initially relate to us can often provoke reactions or um, self-inquiries that yield I suppose insights about how we are and who we are and how we choose to live. And I think that if we can explore other people's stories and find a way to find commonalities between different narratives and how they affect us, then it helps us to be more open to things that we may not know about ourselves and to kind of explore hidden depths. I think that's right, because we, you know, we do find ourselves in relationship with others. And most of the time, those are real other people in our lives. But this great word, you know, that uh, Sigmund Freud was all over, you know, this idea of identification, you know, that you can actually identify with another person and it's as if you experience their experience through your own eyes. It's never their experience, of course. But we do this again with people in our lives, but we also do it with people in films and television programs, um, made up ideas in our own heads. And my real hope is that the stories that we're going to be presenting in this program That the people, in a way, avail themselves to everybody else's identification. Like, I don't have that experience, but I can identify with that. And I can learn something about myself through the vehicle of identifying with this other person. There's so much focus on revealing aspects of ourselves, especially with technology and social media. There's a lot of focus on authenticity and genuine relating. And I think oftentimes people don't stop to query what that actually looks like or what it might mean. And so creating a space where you can dive into these untouchable subjects that are not pretty, that are not popular, that are 
difficult and harrowing and also joyful and liberating to provide a space in which people can kind of walk through someone else's story alongside them and grow from their experiences and from from the traumas or the liberations that they've experienced I think is is something which is yeah it's quite beautiful I was just so happy I was just so relieved I felt like I could breathe you know and I was I was in love you know it's like falling in love In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into one woman's journey through extraordinary loss and how she finds her way to the other side. And this is actually quite personal for me because this woman happens to be Erica, a girl I went to high school with. <laughs> My name is Erica Takis. Am I, did I touch something? No, no, I'm just turning the game down because now that you're close. <clears throat> one last time, please. <laughs> My name is Erica Takis, and I... Erica was a friend of mine, and uh, I lost a parent in high school, and then Erica lost a parent shortly after in the early years of university. And uh, reflecting back on who we were going to speak to about this podcast, I think I felt a kind of kinship with her about having lost something so important so early on. Don't want to give the game away, but when I when I lost my parent, he's big enough... Mm. When she lost hers, she lost so much more, and you know, the details to come. I grew up as a Christian scientist, and one of the things about Christian science that's unusual is that Christian scientists do not uh, use any kind of medicine. They believe that they can um, affect healing through prayer. And so we we did that in my family growing up. We we didn't take medicine. We didn't go to doctors. When I was a freshman in college, uh, my mother had found a lump in her breast, and she was young at the time. She was only forty two, and was hoping to, as they say in Christian Science, get her healing. She eventually ended up in what's called a Christian Science nursing home, uh, where she was uh, away from us for I guess almost a year. Um, she eventually got sick enough that she ended up going to a hospital, I think, as a last-ditch attempt to sort of save her life. I think at that point she kind of gave up. And in my junior year of college, when I was 20, uh, she died. And at the time, well, it was, it was devastating in so many ways. Um, I lost her. I feel like in some ways I lost her when she went to the hospital uh, because she, as I said, she sort of gave up because she felt like she had lost her center uh, because this faith that had meant so much to her failed her. Or I think she probably felt like she failed it, like she didn't pray well enough or something. I think she almost died, actually. And I think if it had not been for us, I think she would have just died. Um, in the, I think she would have let, allowed herself to die. I think she decided to go to the hospital uh, because she wanted to try to live so that we wouldn't lose our mom. I felt like I had lost her long before I actually lost her physically. And of course, we hadn't told a lot of people that she was sick because you don't tell people if you're trying to deny that it's real. 
they say that they have this understanding of, of Christianity and of the spiritual world that most people don't understand, um, which is essentially that the material world doesn't exist. And so we are now, we are spiritual and eternal and perfect. And the reason that we see ourselves in material bodies and see ourselves as flawed and imperfect is, is a failure of comprehension. Uh, uh, and so um, we see the material world kind of because it's the best that we can do right now. So if you're sick, it's, it's not faith healing in that you say, well, I'm sick and God will heal me. I know that God will heal me. It's you say, well, say I have a sore throat. So I, I have a sore throat. And the way that you pray about that in my understanding of Christian science, from my upbringing, was to say that I don't have a sore throat because I don't really even have a throat. I'm created spiritual and perfect and eternal. God doesn't even know that you have a sore throat. It's, a very, it's, an, it's an intensely isolating experience to be sick and to be trying to get, get your healing, as Christian scientists say, in that way. I remember after my mom uh, died, uh, because even when she went in the hospital, we were very, my family was very, we, we weren't used to negotiating the medical system, first of all, and, and we were very unclear as to the extent of the cancer. Um, it really was only maybe weeks before she died that we were able to have really open conversations about it as a family. Just We just didn't have the practice. You know, we didn't have the vocabulary to do that. I was in a choir at the time at the college that I went to with a, a man who's affected a lot of, of change for me. Um, he's just been one of those people that's been sort of a guidepost. Uh, his name is Donald Nally, and he was a conductor of this choir. And we were singing, it wasn't intended as a religious experience, but we were singing the um, evening service of uh, Stanford in G major. Uh, which is, includes the texts of the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis, which, of course, I didn't know what those things were because we don't have those texts. and we, I didn't have those texts in Christian science growing up. I just knew we were singing this piece. And the, the text of the Nunc Dimittis is, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. And I didn't, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it, I, I didn't know where that, I mean, I, I sort of knew where it came from in the Gospel of Luke, but I didn't know the meaning that that text has had in the Christian tradition for so long. I just knew that for me at that moment, that text expressed exactly what I was hoping. I was praying that prayer for my mother, like just let her go in peace. We had stopped going to church. Again, it's an awkward thing because you're going to this church with people that you know you spend time with that you love, you know, and who love you, who really do love you. And they know that something's going on, but they don't know what it is. And they don't really feel like they can ask because to ask is to make it more real, right? So it's a very, it ends up being a very isolating and it, and I think feels cold looking at it now when I look back. You know, I remember being in church with people and you could see that something had happened or you could see that they had a, 
a wound or a growth or something on their fa face and you just didn't bring it up, you know. I mean, the most extreme example of this is that um, at my mother's funeral, where there was a mix of people who were Christian scientists and people who were not Christian scientists, our friends, and of course my dad's whole family, which is not Christian science. We were standing in sort of a line for people to greet us, and people from the church came up to us and said, with great love, you realize that, no you remember that none of this really happened. You know that none of this really happened. And I, being fresh out of that system, knew what they were saying. I could feel that they meant that as an act of love. But as someone who had one foot out the door, I also could look at that and say, that's just incredible that someone could say that to me right now at my mother's funeral. It's an incredible thing to say. It's an astonishing thing to say to someone in that moment. And I was enough out, I was on my way out and I was enough outside that I could look back, I could look in and say, wow, I can't believe that people are saying that to me. The conclusion that I came to at the end of that was either Christian science is wrong, flawed, or my mother just didn't pray well enough or hard enough. And I couldn't accept the latter. I just, I mean, my mother was a beautiful person. She loved her faith. It meant a lot to her. And she had done nothing for years. I mean, this had been going on for years, but pray. The only alternative, if there's no healing, is to say, well, she didn't quite do it right. And I just couldn't accept that. My family and I couldn't accept that. So that's when I left Christian Science. And I was furious. I mean, I was just so angry because I felt like I'd been betrayed. My brother and I both were sick as kids. We both had chicken pox. My brother, I think, had the mumps. I, I think, had mono. We had bet our life on this thing. And my mother, in a very real way, had bet her life on this thing. And it had failed. And so I was just angry. And it was very easy for me to, to decide that it was not her fault. And that it was, in fact, this flawed system of seeing the, the world. It's distressing to listen to that family descend into what in the most normal circumstances is such a terrible moment and to not have those basic tools that you would accept, expect, mm -hmm. to not have the basic tools to sit around a hospital bed and say you're ill, you're dying, now what? It's almost like blaming the victim that if you just prayed a little bit harder, you wouldn't have put yourself in the situation. And that's something that I find absolutely abhorrent the idea that you could say to someone you've brought this on yourself if you acknowledge it you're bringing it on yourself this this there's no way out of that psychologically it's such a bind how, I mean how do people find their way out and I think it's extraordinary that she gets to the point where everything having been lost 
Uh, it isn't a gradual realization of maybe I'm losing my faith. It's a sense of such deep betrayal. Like when she talks about having one foot out the door and in that moment when someone says, you know, none of this happened, it's like your house is on fire and everyone's saying, no, just stay where you are, you're fine. That it's so violent in my mind. It's such a violent moment mm -hmm. of just utter denial of reality that it causes extra injury, like you say, when, when things are so difficult to then add that onto the fire. It's so painful to listen to because she so clearly says there was no doubt, like all the doubt came at once, you know, all of the doubt came at once. And then you have to retrospectively work it out. And I, I thought it was really um, heartbreaking is that whole period of blame that she had for herself and the self-recrimination and the missed conversations she would have had in that anger, you know, and not only like the anger at God and the anger at the church, but not wanting to be angry at the people who were all lovely and warm and loving and part of a community, and yet also part of a community that, as you say, contributed to the death of her mother, resulting in a sense of, and it didn't happen. So you, you talk about finding and losing a self, you know, to, to not have your reality reflected back to you is a surefire way of getting, getting lost, isn't it? The more positive aspect of my life in, in the immediate aftermath of my mother's death was that my vocation, my life as a musician, music became uh, the place where I made meaning in my life. And so music became even more important to me, I would say, than it had been because it was through the in the in the way that music can touch transcendence i think became the place where i found my purpose which was for me a very life-saving thing i felt very clear i could find meaning purpose connection in music making Music making is incredibly spiritual and it does help people connect to one another and to a sense of something larger than themselves. And it is, it does make meaning. For a while that was enough and it was, it was very, uh, it was a relief to me um, to just have that to think about. So I was in my second year of a master's program preparing my conducting recital. The way that conducting is taught there was incredibly spiritual. It's not a religiously affiliated school. It used to be, but it's not anymore. But uh, the way that I was taught to think about and approach music with a sense of, of openness, of respect for the music that was on the page and the person who had put it there. Um, and then in the moment of conducting, to be aware of my breath, to breathe in the moment, to breathe not just at the same time that the choir is breathing, but actually as the choir, to be listening, deeply listening to what's happening in the moment, in the present moment. It's a lot of prayer practice. I mean, that's, you know, sort of meditation practice of being present and breathing and open and 
uh, receptive to sort of what's coming at you. And so here I was immersed in this system where I'm trying to breathe and be present and also thinking like, okay, well, maybe I'm looking for something, but I'm not really sure what it is. And maybe I can just be spiritual and love music, you know. Um, and I was practicing. I had a rehearsal for my conducting recital and it was going really terribly. This one particular rehearsal, I was really disconnected from the sound. Um, I wasn't conducting very well. I wasn't listening very well. And I had that sense of watching myself doing something. And it felt terrible, um, as those moments do. You know, I left the rehearsal in tears, just devastated, because I thought, well, obviously I can't do this. You know, obviously I'm not any good at that. And my advisor and mentor and dear friend, Andrew McGill, who's this other conductor, sort of came with me as I was melting down. Um, and we went to sit in the, the back stacks of what's called the performance library. It's sort of a collection of scores that you can check out to sing from, you know, it's music. And it was, I remember being sort of dark and dusty back there and we sat there and I was weeping, really beating myself up, you know, and he was trying to be loving and, and comforting and, and give me good advice, professional advice, you know. And then I finally just said the question that was really on my heart, which was, you know, what do you do? I asked him, what do you do when you just can't do it? When you can't make yourself connect, when you can't make yourself open up, when you can't, when you just can't hear and you just can't do it. And he looked at me. I have a really hard time telling the story without crying. He looked at me and he said, well, it's in moments like that, that I learn a lot about grace. And I thought, grace like we're talking about music we're not talking about god we're not talking about grace what do you and and i don't honestly remember what else we said in that conversation except that that moment is like a light bulb moment for me i at that moment i felt something break open in me and i thought to myself you know what erica that is what you're actually looking for like you you love music and you'll always love music and spirituality in this has been really helpful but you're actually looking for god that's what you're actually looking for for the next several years uh it was me being reintroduced to God. And my old choir director, Donald Nally, hired me to sing at uh, St. Mark's Church in Center City, Philadelphia for a Christmas Eve mass where one of his altos had been very sick and couldn't sing at all. So he knew that I could read pretty well. And so um, I went in at the last minute and sang this mass. You know, Christmas Eve is wonderful at, at St. Mark's. Magical. I don't mean that in a, you know, I mean just it's a it's beautiful and mysterious, and it blew me away. I don't know what that was, but I want more of it. And then I ended up being hired to sing there regularly. Um, at St. Mark's, my husband at the time was an organist and he was hired to play the organ there as well. So it became our church job. And I really only sang there probably for a couple of months before 
I went to talk to the priest and I said, you know, like, look, I, I don't know what any of this is. I just know that I, I want it. Like, I want to know more about this. Like, I feel like I'm trying to pray while I'm singing these texts. I have this memory of being in the choir stalls and singing some setting of the Kyrie eleison. I don't remember what it was. And, and realizing in that moment, oh my gosh, like we're praying, you know, we're, we're saying, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. Like God is actually listening to this. You know, this isn't just a musical setting. This is actually a prayer. I think I want to become a Christian. I think I want to be baptized. And so I, I, was, became a part of this catechumenate and uh, went through a period of preparation for baptism with other people from the church, two other people from the choir, actually, other professional singers, which was uh, wonderful, and um, felt like I was learning a new way to be in relationship with God, a completely new way to be in relationship with God. At that stage, was there a thought in your mind that you would take it, take it to be a priest? No, not at all. Uh, no, I. I mean, I knew that I. W I loved this. You know, I knew that I was finding myself in this place. I mean, you know, people that I've known will use the phrase. You know, I, I feel like I'm home. You know, I. It's a new place, but I feel like I'm home, and that was very much the case for me. So I, I felt like I was finding myself, but no, I had no idea that uh, ordination was not on my mind from the beginning. I mean, when I look back and I think about my life in the Christian science faith, now looking back, it's not entirely surprising that that I would experience a call to the priesthood. I mean, I, I think I always felt a call to leadership in the religion that I was a part of, which Christian science just doesn't have priests. So there was no model for me of what that might look like. I, I think when I left the faith at first, I was just angry and I thought the whole thing was awful and would tell anybody that asked me that, uh, that I thought it was awful. And then I realized that I had grown up reading scripture every day and that that's a good thing and that we had prayed and gone to church as a family and that that was, that there are good things about that. And I think I was a little bit more forgiving. There, there are some things about it that may have been helpful, but ultimately I, I don't believe it's a helpful religion. I think it's actually quite harmful. My mom's not certainly not the only Christian scientist who's died um, because he or she didn't go to a doctor. But because why would you live in a world where you think that God only loves you because God imagines you to be perfect? Like, I have a better way <laughs> to be. You know, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't have it, but I know a better, you know, I mean, I, uh, the Christianity teaches a, a better way. Well, it feels very difficult to compete with feeling unconditionally loved right. in a moment for all of your flaws. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. You can't beat that. No, when, and we can't be perfect. We just can't. I mean, I'm, I often call myself a recovering perfectionist, and I think that's uh, painful and, and harmful. I really have found myself, and I'm doing what I am called to do. It doesn't always mean it's easy doesn't always mean that I love everything that I do, but it feels remarkably authentic. Mm -hmm. And that's wonderful because it 
allows me the freedom to be truly vulnerable because I'm not faking it. Like, this is who I am. What I find amazing about this story is just how many themes there are wrapped up into this one experience. So you have the acute sense of denial of reality when it's too difficult to, to confront, the sense of isolation within a community who won't acknowledge what's really happening, the abandonment of feeling completely betrayed by your faith and by your God, the loss of a parent. I mean, there's so many really difficult themes that many of us might only experience one or two of in our lifetimes. Like you, I, I'm not particularly religious. I was raised Catholic and don't really like many of the structures of religion and would also describe myself as atheist. But one of the things that I found really striking about how she spoke about her experience was the empathy with which she spoke and her desire to connect to people and make space for the difficult reality of life, which is something that she so lacked the tools for or the vocabulary for when she was growing up and the ability to create that space for grace for other people to allow there to be a connection in the difficulty, in the darkness, and to make that a space for grace of some kind. Uh, it's something which I think in our societies and culture, in the absence of religion, we, we haven't found very many good ways to create. Uh, and so her discovery of that and sharing of it, I found really moving. I also actually. wonder, listening to her story, whether though she would always have ended up seeking God in a re religious structure because that was the blueprint for her childhood. I mean, it was, mm. this was the structure of your days, the rhythm of your life. And if you remove that, once you've taken the shape of that container and you rob yourself of it, what other structure is there to keep you up if mm. you haven't developed the tools to inquire in a way that allows you to deal with difficulty, that allows you to connect with other people, that in the setting up of that way of thinking, you're creating someone almost like with an exoskeleton so that when you take that away, the form just falls. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder how much of her latter seeking of God was due to that initial kind of understanding of the world, that, that, that there was that structure and without it, it just didn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think people do, I think people do need a scaffold and we all have like, there's so many choices that we can make of different, you know, scaffolds to choose from, whether it's a religious one or a spiritual one or a ritualized one or a philosophical, you know, that you can, you can make all of these choices. But I think whether it's religious or existential, there's got to be a frame. Mm. And I guess what's, what I think is very interesting about the story is there's something very wrong with the primary frame so wrong with it that it was like it was destructive it was really really destructive and she found another frame that spoke to her not one that speaks to me not one that speaks to you but speaks to her and she's able to draw on that experience i just think it's so fascinating the way in which people are drawn through this kind of labyrinthine process of being able to express themselves in a way that feels whole mm. you know when it was it was there, there was meaning and it all made sense. And then everything that made it make sense and have meaning disappeared. Mm. And then she finds her way back to making sense again. Mm. Mm, it's like this process of destruction and then from the pieces you build something that gives you a bit more space somehow where you reconfigure mm. what you have into a building that 
accommodates you somehow a bit better, hopefully, that that's what you can do when you go through these, I suppose, deconstructing experiences. What, what you choose to build next has to be something which fits you better. And it sounds like that's what she did. I also found it really moving to hear about how she talked about the music and feeling so out of flow and disconnected, almost disembodied, and that causing such a schism for her that that was the thing that, that made way for the conversation about grace. And I think the moment where she is so disconnected from that capacity to transcend, where she can't conduct, she can't hear, it feels almost like being, again, isolated and lost in this darkness. And for someone else to open a door, a gateway for her to refine the bigger thing that she was trying to connect with. So for her, this sense of meaning and God and scaffold, it's really extraordinary that that's what happens first to enable that to happen, so that something cracks open in her. I'm I'm curious about the word grace because mm. in a way when I when we were speaking uh I understood what she meant by it even though it has a particular kind of meaning I think in Christianity but it it seemed like like uh, like everything was able to be released or surrendered in this moment like all of this like guff you know all of this like self-attack in rigidity and shutdown and lack of contact like all of a sudden it's like you know, and I think um, it doesn't it doesn't have to be Christian grace. I know Maslow, you know, talked about um, aha moments, you know, that, that that's somehow a moment of grace also when like everything can be released. Um, I think we'll be exploring in future shows lots of stuff around how people achieve that that sensibility. But it's a curious it's a curious experience, I think, to experience something like grace. I really have found myself. I'm not faking it. Like, this is who I am. I'm Dr. Aaron Balick. And I'm Natalie Nahai. And this is Seeking the Self. <laughs>